0: As we get started this morning, I want to offer to you, I think, a a real great tip on discipleship to maximize your discipleship if you're a consistent part of this local church. As a matter of fact, if you do this one simple thing, uh, more than anything, this will help you profit from the preaching that goes on from week in and week out. Uh, If you notice, as a matter of fact, at the bottom, look at your bulletin. Under the notes section, we print for you the following Sunday sermon text. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but the reason I draw your attention to that is we really believe that that can be a very helpful tool for you by just reading that passage sometime in the coming week that forms in your mind questions about the passage that maybe the sermon will address. Uh, It gives to you categories of thoughts that you can engage more thoughtfully and more intentionally. It's even a great way that you can probably disciple your kids if you have young kids or people in your home. You can open up the text some Monday night or dinner time and, and just read through that passage and help them think about so Sunday, what will the word, how will this unpack and apply to our lives, the interpretation of it, the application of it. That can be a very profitable thing to do that really wouldn't add any more to your week. Now, if you're to do that, like I said, that just makes Sunday morning even more potent in your minds. With maybe the exception of this particular week, if you had done that last week, you would have read Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. And as you heard read to you by Adam this morning, it was basically the travel itinerary of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Not exactly the most riveting material to preach a sermon on. And a couple times this week people asked me, so what are you going to do with this particular passage? Now I'll be honest, uh, verses 19-30 um, is not nearly as exciting as the material that comes before it, nor the material that comes after it. And there's a good chance if I asked you to raise your hands, not a single one of you would say that your favorite Bible verse comes from this text, right? That's correct. You might even be tempted to think, well, why don't don't we just then... Gotta kind of pass over this. I don't really need to know who's coming and who's going in Paul's life at this point. Surely there's more interesting things we could talk about. Get to chapter 3, chapter 4, and some amazing passages like chapter 3, verse 14. Striving with all my energy as Christ is the goal, right? Or chapter 4. How do I, how do I deal with anxiety when Paul says, be anxious for nothing, and gives us this amazing hint at how to overcome anxiety? Why don't we get to that stuff, because that's really practical. As I was studying Monday night, I I could almost hear my, my college Bible professor in church growth say, look, you will kill your church if you preach on the travel logs of the New Testament, right? But honestly, this is where we have to let our theology form the way we think about things, as our understanding of the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture really informs us on these kinds of things. Those doctrines tell us that there's no material in here that is not pertinent for the material that's in here. So in my mind, when I come across a passage that, okay, this really does seem kinda boring here, I don't need to know about their travel itinerary, or any other text that just doesn't seem to fit, because of the doctrine of inerrancy and the inspiration of scripture, that's an argument in my mind that I need to be even more careful for why that's in God's word. So the question we have to ask is, so why does Paul, insert a travel itinerary, a travel log, in this amazing flow of what he's talking about to the letter to the Philippians. Perhaps it's because Timothy and Epaphroditus serve as concrete examples of everything Paul has been trying to teach us way back from chapter 1 all the way through to what we've studied last week. Remember with me going back a couple of weeks uh, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul started talking about what it means to live lives worthy of the gospel. Remember that. And then how he began chapter 2 talking about doing nothing out of selfish conceit or rivalry, but thinking of the needs and interests of others above your own. Well, I couldn't think of two more greater examples and this young man, Timothy, and this young man, Epaphroditus, who are living exemplary lives, worthy lives of giving themselves away for the welfare and interests of others. I think that's what his point is. Now, honestly, um, it does kind of come to us in a pretty mundane package. But as I thought about it Monday night, I thought, I think that's probably Paul's point here. And it is a point that our overstimulated, over-sensationalized world needs to hear. Faithful Christian living doesn't always look extraordinary. It doesn't always look miraculous. It doesn't always seem exciting like a highlight reel. Faithful Christian living is more often than not really just ordinary And what we see here in a very mundane and ordinary passage of Scripture is really important because of two reasons. Let me just give them to you. Number one, because our lives, my life, your life, is lived in the mundane and the ordinary most times. What are you all going to do tomorrow morning for the most part? Get up, get dressed, have your coffee, get in the car, and commute to work, come home cook some dinner, maybe do some grocery shoppings, feed the dog, wash some dishes, take care of the laundry that's piled up, take care of your kid, help them with their homework, rinse and repeat over and over again. Friends, if we can't make the gospel connect in our ordinary daily lives, we will not be able to connect the gospel in any other context. So I think that's why Paul shows us this. Number two, the second reason it's important to remember this this importance of faithfulness in the ordinary mundane is because we live in a culture, friends, that's just drawn to the dramatic. Everywhere we go, it's got to be sensational and hyped. And as Christians, we cannot help but be pulled into this hunger for the sensational. You ever even noticed, like, it's even impacted the way we have to give the weather report? Stormwatch 2018, the nor'easter winter siege. Really? Just tell me it's a bad blizzard. I don't need it called the winter siege, right? Or if the weather's unseasonably warmer or colder, Do you really have to call it El Nino's coming? La Nina's next. Just, I don't want to learn Spanish just to understand the weather. Just tell me. It's a little bit colder this year. It's a little bit warmer this year. But it's all about sensationalism, getting your attention, getting you dialed in. And friends, when we we live at this overstimulated, over-sensationalized level, we get bored really easily and we 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 do not have the patience to reflect or, or to just spend time dialed into somebody listening to their concerns without a ding a chime a post or something so we can't study we can't listen and what happens ultimately is when we're addicted to the sensational we tend to downplay faithfulness. You may not know it, but we downplay faithfulness and consistency. And we often miss, because of that, the fact that God normally works in the ordinariness of our lives to accomplish his extraordinary plan. Fred Craddock uh, said it the best, a professor of homiletics. Let me quote him here at length to give my life for Christ appears glorious, to pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it, I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. We think giving our all to the Lord is is like taking a thousand dollar bill yeah, this is 100. Okay. <laughs> I can barely get this, so I'm not let a 1,000. But we think giving our all to the Lord is taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table and saying, Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality is, He sends most of us to the bank to cash in that $1,000 for a bunch of quarters. And He asks us to go through our lives, just putting out 25 cents here maybe 50 cents there, listen to the neighbor's kids' troubles and telling them to sort of get off my lawn, right? Go to a committee meeting, give a cup of water to a shaky old man's hand in a nursing home. Usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easier to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life 25 cents at a time over the long haul. That's very true. For some, living the Christian life may mean martyrdom. For others, they will go out in a blaze of glory. But for most of us, it means faithfully depositing, investing, 25 cents of our lives in simple, humble acts, unknown acts of obedience and faithfulness over the long haul in these practical works of service. I think that's why we have Philippians chapter 2 verses 19 through 30, so we could see in practical detail what it means to live our lives 25 cents at a time. It makes so much sense that that Paul would begin going way back into Philippians 1.21 with these instructions of worthy lives followed by commands to humility and then he would end it with examples of what both of those look like and we wouldn't even have anticipated that if we were thinking about these themes. We come to this passage and we get bored and go, what's the point? Why do we want to know about a travel log?" And we miss that Paul's saying, that's what I'm doing. But we're so sensationalized, we don't even realize that he's driving the same point home. So we need to ask two questions of our passage this morning and then a concluding questions to, question to ourselves. Number one, how did Timothy spend his quarters? Number two, how did Epaphroditus spend his quarters? And then finally, how will you spend your quarters? Let's look at them one at a time. How did Timothy spend his quarters? Timothy takes up the first chunk, verse 20 up to 22, and, and then some, but Timothy, as you know, is, is Paul, is very fond and very close with Paul. It's very likely that Paul played some instrumental role in Timothy's conversion. In 2 Corinthians 4, in 1 Timothy 1, Paul refers to Timothy as his beloved son in the faith. It's very likely that Paul was very instrumental in Timothy coming to faith in Christ. And like a son, Timothy reflected a lot of the character of his father. So he was a church planter, knowledgeable and excited about the gospel. And because of that, Timothy himself was very effective we notice here that Paul wants to send young Timothy to the Philippian church, but this isn't the first time that Timothy was giving a, getting a job to help a church out. In 1 Corinthians 4, we learn that Paul sent Timothy to help the Corinthian churches out. In 1 Thessalonians 3, we read again that Paul sent his faithful envoy, Timothy, to help the churches of Thessalonia out. And then in 1st and 2nd Timothy, we realize that Timothy was, played a key role in shepherding the churches at Ephesus. So Timothy was a strategic partner to Paul, and, and if we're thinking about this, we might get the picture of Timothy as kind of in our modern vernacular as a deal closer, right? Maybe, maybe an entrepreneur with a personality, personality profile to meet that. If he were alive today, Timothy might have a blog, right? He might be called a strategist or a church consultant. He'd have a Twitter following that was huge. But if that's your idea of what Timothy might have been, you'd be wrong. Timothy was none of those things. Timothy was none of those things that our culture looks to, even our evangelical culture looks to as a a powerful church planner, powerful in the gospel. He was none of those things. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.10, that Timothy had followed Paul's teaching, followed Paul's conduct, his aim in life, his faith, his patience, his love, and his steadfastness. Those typically aren't the words that we use to describe powerful deal closers, but that was Timothy. More to the point, Paul says that he's got nobody like Timothy. Okay, well, what what was he like then? Verse 20 tells us. Paul says that Timothy has genuine concern for the Philippians' well-being he's concerned for their welfare. And we can't miss this. Notice in verse 21, in contrasting Timothy to the others, Paul says, speaking of the others, that they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So let's, put, let's do some work here. Let's put verse 20 and verse 21 together and realize that a genuine concern for others is the equivalent of pursuing the interests of Jesus Christ. you see that there? Paul says, there's nobody like Timothy who's really concerned for you. Everyone else is pursuing their own interests. Timothy pursues the interests of Christ. Put that together, the interests of Christ is the equal of being concerned for the interests of others. Friends, do you like to think of yourself as someone who's pursuing the interests of Christ? Now, if a Christian, if you're a Christian, you're going to obviously say, well, of course, but... Maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're just interested in the spirituality about Jesus, if not the institutional aspects of him. Wherever you are, whether you are a Christian or you're just interested in spirituality, the Bible never lets you have a Christian faith or a spirituality that does not have teeth in it. If you are at all interested in Jesus, it makes it very clear here that that interest should show in a genuine concern for others doesn't have to be all the same as everyone else, but in some way, some form, some shape, some manner, your life is going to display a genuine concern for the welfare of others' well-being, because that's how Timothy was, and he pursued the interests of Christ. And notice what Paul says in verse 22. Verse 22 says, he, "'You know yourselves of his proven worth.'" Timothy had proven himself. His genuine care was known even by a church hundreds of miles away. In verse 19 and verse 23, Paul says, so I am ready to send Timothy to you. Friends, that's a journey of 800 miles. From Rome to Philippi, 800 miles. That's some genuine care. Now my care might go 20 or 30 miles but 800 miles. There's no planes, no trains, no automobiles, no Lyft, no Uber. Maybe if Timothy's lucky, he's got himself a horse. 800 miles. You saw the map. It was through ocean, over mountain ranges, through plains. It was an arduous and dangerous travel. Even with the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, even with the Roman infrastructure of roads, it was still dangerous travel. It's not like today, right? Don't imagine, oh, you're going from Rome to Paris. How glamorous. No, this was not the same. But at a moment's notice, Timothy was ready to go. When the Philippians had need, Timothy said, there you go, I'm going. There's 25 cents, I'll take the trip. Friends, here's an important principle we get from this young man. Any type of ministry is going to cost you. Ministry that costs us nothing accomplishes nothing. So the question we have to ask is, what's the cost factor for you in the expanding work of the gospel? How many quarters are you going to have to spend this week? What does it cost you to look out for the concerns and welfares of others. Friends, pray that God would enlarge your heart to be concerned for the welfare of others. You don't need to pray that for this for yourself. We are naturally concerned about ourselves. Pray that God would enlarge your heart so that you'd be concerned for the welfare of others. If you're new at this church and you're looking for a way to plug in, there are many opportunities and many tasks, but if you wanna have fulfilling ministry, just get to know 10, 15 people in this church and start meeting their needs. Yes, it'd be great to have you serve in the usher ministry, to serve in children's ministry, but if you want to have a fulfilling ministry, a Christ-honoring, gospel-fueled ministry, get to know 10 people. Find out what their needs are and meet those needs. Maybe you're in a community group. Maybe you can use some of your quarters for the people in your community group. Maybe somebody has a struggle. They just need to have their story. They need to tell their story for 20 minutes. Maybe you could listen to them. Maybe somebody just needs prayer. You can help them. Maybe somebody needs you to help them move. That's, well, actually, that's that's a lot right there. (laughs) You guys know, that's, that's where your true friends are, you know. But whatever it is, pay the cost. Use your quarters, and don't just do it once or twice like, like you're checking off a box on what Christian maturity looks like, and then you move on to the next maturity ideal. Get a, take a tip from Timothy. It's proven worth over and over and over and over again. Friends, time won't allow… Um, to do a full study of the other ways that this young man, who probably at this time was probably in his late 20s, maybe the yeah, late 20s, uh, the way he gave his life away. But do yourself a favor, read First and Second Timothy. It'll take you 20 minutes max to see how this young man just used the quarters of his lives well and lived and loved others really well. So that's how Timothy used his quarters. How did Epaphroditus use his quarters? How did he spend his quarters? Now, unlike Timothy, Epaphroditus is a little or much less known to us. He's kind of an unknown figure other than here in Philippians. He doesn't appear anyplace else in the New Testament. So there's not much we know about him. We do know that he was a Christian convert from the church at Philippi. Now, his name gives us a little insight into his background. Epaphroditus is the male version of Epaphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, beauty, and fertility. Now, it could be that he originally was from Neapolis, which was a port city near Philippi. Obviously, that's not what it looked like back then. That's Neapolis there in those pictures now. Uh, He was probably from the port city of of Neapolis because of his name, Epaphroditus, because Aphrodite was also the protectress of sailors. So it's a good chance, coming from the port city, that his family were seafaring people as well. Beyond that, we don't know much about Epaphroditus other than what Paul tells us in verse 25, and it is high praise. Look at this one verse. Paul calls Epaphroditus a brother, a fellow worker in the gospel. We talked about that in our very first sermon on Philippians, partnering in the gospel. He calls Epaphroditus a soldier, a messenger, and a minister to his needs. Friends, that is high praise for this man. Five, five descriptors of this man's amazing ministry in just one verse. The most important thing to know about Epaphroditus, though, is that he served almost to the point of death. Verse 30. You could actually loosely translate verse 30 this way. Epaphroditus almost died because he rolled the dice to complete the work of Christ. You see that phrase in our English translation, risking his life, comes from the Greek words, the Greek word that's similar to parable, paraboleomai. It means to cast alongside. Literally, it means to gamble in this particular case. Not parable, but paraboleomai means to gamble with, in danger. It has the connotations of rolling dice when high sums are at stake. In other ancient writings of the first century, the same word is found in Greek papyri that refers to a friend who exposes themselves to danger by becoming like an advocate in a legal case for someone else. Whatever the case, it talks about rolling dice in a very risky situation where you could be harmed. Now we can see why Paul loved Epaphroditus, why he meant so much to Paul. Like Timothy Epaphroditus spent almost everything he had for Paul and the gospel work. Now, if you're really dialed in, there is an echo in the end of chapter 2, where we're looking at now in kind of the middle of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 8, Paul's writing about Christ's self-humbling says, He was obedient unto death, while Epaphroditus, who expended himself in the cause of Christ, came close to death. I think there's some intentionality there. Like Timothy, Epaphroditus is an example of the unselfish service that Paul began chapter two about. In verses one through four, when he said, do nothing out of conceit or rivalry, but think of the interest of others. I think Epaphroditus and Timothy beautifully picture that. And then later in Philippians two and verses five through 11, Paul used Christ as the supreme example of someone who lived that way. Chapter 2, verse 17, Paul himself said, even I am willing to pour my life out as a drink offering. And so he closes this chapter with two more concrete examples. You want to know what living worthy of the gospel is? Do you want to know what what faithfulness and humility and obedience is? Just look at these guys. They they don't have their, well, other than Timothy, uh, Epaphroditus doesn't have a book written about him. He's just kind of unknown But this man lived his life 25 cents at a time in a way that mattered. And so we see now how Timothy and Epaphroditus spent their quarters in care and service and sacrifice. Our last question now is, how will we spend our quarters? Lori and I just uh, got through, uh, finished going through uh, Financial Peace University that Jeff and Jordan was leading. And I just want to encourage you, if that's being offered again, take advantage of it. We came to a realization that we didn't realize how much financial leakage there was in our life. Now, don't get me wrong, we're not irresponsible, we've been pretty good stewards of what God had given to us, but until we took the FPU class, I didn't realize how because I wasn't tracking every single quarter, that I was spending my finances in a way that I inadvertently didn't intend to. You know, I thought last night, or excuse me, Friday night, that's a lot like how we live our lives. If we're not tracking every quarter, we can inadvertently Spend our lives in ways we didn't intend to. More time in front of the screen instead of the Savior. More time being entertained than being equipped. Killing time rather than redeeming time. Wasting my life one quarter at a time rather than investing my life for the things that matter most. But here's some good news, friends. Here's some good news. Being intentional about spending our lives 25 cents at a time can be a huge game changer, and we can do that right now. Faithfulness in the small, mundane aspects of life entrusted into the powerful, providential hands of God who's working out His glorious plan of redemption is a motif all through the scriptures. Our faithfulness, with just 25 cents that nobody will know about, entrusted into his hands, who's working out a master plan for all of humanity that resonates into eternity, is a motif woven all through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Friends, small faithfulness in a big God goes a long way. And let me just give you, real briefly, Eight examples of what I'm talking about, about this motif. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says to the nation of Israel, look, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest and the strongest of all these nations. I chose you for the opposite reason, because you were the least of all and you could contribute nothing. You were just ordinary, nothing special. In Judges chapter 7, he tells Gideon, I don't need 10,000 soldiers. Just give me 300 faithful guys and I'll do an amazing work against the Moabites. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus teaches the parable of the mustard seed. This says the kingdom. It's like this little mustard seed that none of you guys even pay attention to, but when it grows, it becomes the biggest plant in the vineyard. John chapter 6, the little boy says, Look, I have nothing to offer. I know we're all starving. I got a couple of fish and bread. What is that going to do? And Jesus says, oh, it's all I need. In Mark chapter 12, when the widow gives just a couple of mites, Jesus says, that one there gave everything. Everyone here gave out of their abundance. She gave out of her need. Isaiah 53, Isaiah tells us Jesus himself, he was just an ordinary, plain person. There was nothing about him that you would have been drawn to. If he walked in the room, you would have ignored him because he was like anything else. Matthew 16, the fact that Jesus starts this church, the focus, the locus of his redemptive plan throughout humanity through eternity, and he starts it with 12 insignificant guys who could barely hold it together amongst themselves. In 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul says, it is in your weakness that his strength is made clear. We can go on and on. This is a motif all through the scriptures that just our faithfulness, our little contribution entrusted to God can be all that's necessary. Because God delights to take what little we have to show how great He is. God delights to use just the ordinary to do the extraordinary. God delights to redeem what we think is irredeemable because then we are blown away, not by the kind of facade of sensationalism, but by the glory of His redemptive plan and His character as it is a reflection of His character. And when you think about it, our salvation is the best example of that, right? So we just believe, and he radically saves. We just ask for just a little bit of mercy because of our sin, and he makes us a son or daughter. You give up your sin. He gives you the righteousness of Jesus himself. All you bring is a measly quarter, and He gives you an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable, and never fading. Friends, in God's economy, we can never discount the mundane, the ordinary, the simple, the obscure, the unknown service, the the anonymous gift, because that's the way God's economy works. Let me just give you an illustration of that. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, the world, rightly so, marveled and mourned the death, the passing of Billy Graham. Presidents were at his funeral. I guarantee you, none of us heard nor were any presidents at the funeral of Reese Brown. Some uneducated farmhand who would spend 4 a.m. milking the cow preaching the wonders of redemption to a young Billy sitting next to him. If you know about church history or if you are glad you have a Bible, you know the name William Tyndale and we're marveled at what he did and the sacrifice he made. Nobody knows about Humphrey Monmouth, the well-to-do business entrepreneur who said, I believe in the vision and I'm going to fund it. But in eternity, we all will. We all know the name George Whitfield. This man, it seems, singularly transformed the Americas and England with revival in the 1800s. But in heaven, we're gonna be blown away by Lady, Lady Huntington who opened the doors and introduced Whitfield to the centers of power, influence, politics, socialite, cultural, and all these things Platformed Whitfield. Friends, that's what eternity is going to be like. All the people behind the scenes, faithful one quarter at a time, being faithful at the little things unseen. This is the way of the gospel. This is the way of the cross. We should not be a people that seek greatness. We should be a people that seek faithfulness. Don't seek celebrity. Seek humility. Don't blog about service. Just serve right? Don't just, don't just Instagram Bible verses, incarnate Bible verses. Don't worry about how many Twitter followers you have. Worry that you're following faithfully. Who cares how many likes your posts get if God doesn't like what you're posting? This is how we need to go through life, not listening for the applause of men because it's so fickle and frail. Listen for the applause of heaven, however quiet it might be the side of eternity, and cherish it because it matters more. That's why I think Paul ended this amazing section on humility and worthy lives with something as mundane and just ordinary like a travel itinerary of these servants who are just hoofing it hundreds of miles back and forth, getting ill because they're serving, but still going forward, being concerned for other people hundreds of miles away, even though when they have every reason to be concerned about themselves, because they're the example of what Christian faithfulness is about. Not the glamorous, not the big, not the amazing, but the simple, consistent little things, 25 cents at a time. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the way You weave in the Scripture passages that we might ordinarily just pass right over and yet miss to our own detriment. How amazing these passages can be Father, help us to remember that even our small faithfulness to a big God goes a long way. Lord, that the way of humility is the way of the cross. The way of humility is the way of the church. Father, we don't have to be strategists and consultants and bloggers and celebrities and all those things. As a matter of fact, you disdain to use those, but you love to find the humble, the quiet, the obscure because then the true glory can be made known and as you, you alone deserve the glory. The only contribution we bring to the table is our shortcomings and liabilities and sin, but everything you bring to the table is glorious. Father, we live in a culture that cannot stand and abide that message, that it's all about making ourselves known and having celebrity and, and all these things. Father, help us to be counter the culture to want to be obscure so that Christ is made great. May there be no celebrity, may there be no fanfare except that glory that is due your Son. And We thank you. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.